Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor, and the videos that you get to see are brought to you by the books that we make in stores now is Red Room Trigger Warnings, Trade Paperback, goes along beautifully next to the Antisocial Network, Red Room Trade Paperback, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit, every story is self-contained, each book has four stories, each book is self-contained. Uh, scoop these up, man. You can hit my link tree in the description below this video to get your hands on uh, current and future Red Room comics. Hulk, Grand Design, Monster, and Madness are in stores right now, and it's going to be getting the Treasury Edition treatment uh, at in the early part of 2023. And Jimmy has Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive. Trade paperback is back in stores now in a new reprint. Get your hands on those comics and support the channel. Uh, also, uh, speaking of supporting the channel, we receive tons of mail and uh, we get some real choice pieces from uh, the audience out there. One of these pieces that just came in uh, to the, the, the studio is this fine book right here, man. Uh, Sphinx Comics, which is the production company that created the documentary Comic Book Confidential uh, for my peer group. I, an extremely important documentary from the mid late 1980s that uh, you will hear time and time again people refer to. Uh, this was a documentary that I uh, saw on regular television. It, it, it might have been A&E uh, that was the station that, that played this thing. And just flicking through this channels, saw Spider-Man on the screen and you could not take for granted seeing uh, Spider-Man on the screen at, at, at that time, man. Uh, stopped dead in my tracks. Somehow I knew it was Stan Lee's voice over top of it, and directly after the Stan Lee portion of this documentary, uh, you jump right into Robert Crumb and the underground, man. Uh, so this piece right here, shouts to Cal Johnston from Halifax, Nova Scotia. He runs a shop called Strange Adventures. There's a handful of these shops in Nova Scotia. If you're ever in town, you got to go check these stores out, man. The, uh, I, I found some really incredible comics there and am so thrilled that he sent this our way. Uh, I have no idea the exact dissemination of this comic. Uh, it says free. What I'm imagining is Ron Mann was doing a tour circuit for uh, Comic Book Confidential, and he had these to give people at the door as a kind of introduction or as a par party favor or something to go along with the film screening. You could see the whole crew uh, that went into putting the documentary together, and basically it's a pretty nuts and bolts history of of comics up to a certain point, man. Uh, when 1986 rolls around and there's that new resurgence and Dark Knight comes out and Watchmen comes out, uh, there is a brand new buzz uh, regarding the medium. There's some bona fide hits uh, that stand the test of time. Watchmen on, on you know, a Time Magazine's top 100 novels of the 20th century. Uh, so, you know, it's a big deal. A lot of eyeballs on comics at that point in time. Very cool to see that uh, Ron Mann and crew, you know, they stuck to the U.S. model uh, whenever they were discussing comics in Comic Book Confidential. Pretty sure it's a Canadian uh, production company. But with this piece right here, uh, Ron Mann and crew are able to celebrate some Canadian cartoonists with this Chester Brown 
cover and uh, single page uh, promo piece and uh, for the duration of the comic pretty much you just get into a kind of uh, introduction into the players that are going to be in the documentary the people that you can expect to see in the documentary and this reminded me that uh, early in the kayfabe channel jimmy and i uh, recorded a an audio commentary track that can be synced up with comic book confidential and what i'm going to do once we cut out here for this uh little once we cut out here from looking at this magazine we'll segue right into that audio commentary uh jimmy and i will let you know when to unpause your video get your comic book confidential dvds or mpegs or however you feel like watching it put it put it on pause as soon as you turn it on and we will tell you when to unpause and enjoy the commentary track because we recorded that thing when we might have had 3,000 subscribers so the, so the channel has grown substantially there's been well over a thousand videos uh, that came after we put that commentary track out there so because the commentary might be buried I have interest in doing more commentary tracks with Jimmy and perhaps Tom also I want to see if uh, the new subscriber base would be interested in uh, such commentary and you could test the waters with us with the comic book confidential audio commentary track that we'll be playing right after this once again I want to give shouts to uh, Cal Johnston and the good people at Strange Adventures comic shop in, Hal in Halifax Nova Scotia they hosted us and were were very gracious um, treated us extremely well it was some of our last travels before COVID and Cal continues to support the channel by sending us uh, some very very cool comic book artifacts like this comic book confidential piece before we cut out of here once again I want to let you guys know man these are our comics please support our comics uh, helps keep the channel going helps keep uh, us in our drawing chair so that we can continue making uh, comics our own and without further ado let's cut to the comic book confidential audio commentary track by me and Jimmy recorded probably late 2018 super super early 2019 check it out and if you want us to do future commentary tracks if you're interested in such a thing let us know what videos you want to hear us uh, speak on top of man i'm thinking about masters of comic book art the one that is hosted by harlan ellison maybe the crumb documentary let us know in the comments below and uh enjoy the commentary track for comic book confidential what do you say jimmy without further ado can we hit hit the play button on this yeah i'll give a countdown for the listeners at home so three two one play and we open up the film with this guy his name is his name is paul coates and this program was uh called confidential file ran from 1953 to 1959 and this douchebag he was like think of a predecessor to like wally george or like a rush limbaugh conservative guy right so some of the some of the titles of some of these shows um if i may uh some of the titles for other shows on this program quack psychology <laughs> daytime whites about light-skinned black people who pass passes pass themselves off as as white people to try to get more opportunity in the 1950s america and then several episodes about homosexuals uh and I quote, homosexuals and the problems they present, 
homosexuals who stalk and molest children. And uh, one of the last episodes of Confidential File, are, are homosexuals criminals? Wow. So you see that this was a very McCarthy-era program. And now we see... This is Paul. This is Paul Mavridis. Like in the in the uh, credits, we see his name. And until yesterday, I was perplexed. I was wondering where the heck his contribution was in the flick. And then I popped his name into the old Google machine. Saw a photo of him. He's clearly this guy right here with that blunt in his mouth at the uh, drawing table. It's such a great opening. Him actually drawing. There's something captivating. I think about watching somebody draw. There's that great Japanese documentary series, Man Ben, where you're just seeing footage of people actually drawing. And when I first saw, you know, when I first became aware of this movie, you see the great movie poster that has all the cartoonist names and then a little image in their styles. And I just assumed they were pulling clips and samples from all of these cartoonists because it's, he nails all these different styles so well. I wonder if he really drew this stuff. You know, I mean, it's so perfect. But then I look at the wobbliness on that Spider-Man, and I'm like, ah, Ditko would have been tighter. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that's his contribution, the Church of the Subgenius, Bob Dobb, or whatever that guy's name is. Let me ask you this, Jimmy. Did you ever uh, fall victim to to the tragedy that occurs uh, at, the, at, the, at the end of this opening. Yeah, I was thinking of that too. I think every artist has had this <laughs> an experience of this sort. Um, you know, I keep my ink well now taped in a, in a holder on my drawing table. Uh, I'm not knocking my ink well over again. <laughs> Heartbreaking. Oh. One thing I like a lot about this documentary is the music... I like the limited animation that they pull off. Yeah, I don't want to get too much about our YouTube channel, but there are edits in the way they present some of the comic books that I intend to steal. <laughs> Very simple, but it looks great. Like, that was a big takeaway for me on this. Oh, uh, there's, there's Bill Gaines, man, in, in Living Color. As, as soon as I saw this, I immediately knew that that was Bill Gaines because I was a mad magazine reader when I was a little kid. And there was a strip called The Lighter Side Of by Dave Berg, I think is the cartoonist mm -hmm. name. And Dave Berg would draw this guy as a character in The, sh in, in the Lighter Side Of uh, every month. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's Bill. And he has his Russ Cockrum EC hard, hardcovers in the back there. See, that was a great open. In the perfectly centered 10 cent square. I love seeing any of this vintage footage. So, like, seeing his office is amazing. I did not realize the role his dad played in creating the format of the comic book. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And, you know, he was... Uh, Max Gaines was associated with Jack Leibowitz and those guys. Like, like I'm not 100% sure how it shook out, but he gets some credit on early national publications. Like, he was associated with the guys who would ultimately become DC Comics. Oh, that's interesting. There's that great book, Men of Tomorrow, that's about the early couple decades of DC Comics. I'm sure there's some, some information about that in, in that book. Like this limited animation. Tell, tell me that's not awesome, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, Bill Gaines, he, he, he became publisher of of educational comics after his poor father 
um, suffered a suffered a death in a boating accident. Oh, look at these photos, man! That guy with the pipe is uh, <laughs> Bill Everett. That's young Will Eisner at the top there in that diamond, and his Siegel and Schuster were on the right there. I know this goddamn movie verbatim. I've seen it that many times, man. It's incredible how the superhero shows up and basically launches the comic book format. What he says about um, what he says says about Babe Ruth and baseball, and by he I mean William Gaines. Right. What he says about Babe Ruth and baseball, and what Milton Berle did for TV, made me want to like investigate. Like, well, what did those guys do for TV? But then, um, obviously, Superman was such a big hit, and the superhero, you know, is immediately on the forefront of that from that point forward, uh, until it's not. And that's something that a lot of people will discover with this documentary that the superhero petered out for a while. So Will Eisner here. I wonder if that's Eisner Iger Studios in that photograph right there. It must be, right? It must be, but I see three or four. No, I see actually five women in that photo, and I never see any female uh, credits in the old um, spirits that that kitchen sink put out. And there's usually a pretty healthy, um, a healthy dissection on on who did what you know, on these strips. But I never see a, a woman's name in there, so. It's so great seeing all these guys, Jack the King. That's that's the unfortunate thing when when this flick came out and when it was on TV. Like a hundred percent of these people were still with us when I saw them. And Ron Mann said in an article that that Kirby at this point was not very lucid. He was he was very forgetful, and mm -hmm. he actually had to do several interviews with Jack to just get some salvageable material for the for the documentary. Some Simon and Kirby right there. I always like the tandem of Simon and Kirby. It's we're so lucky that Ron Mann made this documentary because these guys just weren't being filmed. You know, there's no record of a lot of old cartoonists for that reason, and he talks about that outside of the film. Is some of these people? It's the first time they were being filmed. Jack Kirby reading bits from Captain America number one. Be still my heart. <laughs> oh man. This brings back some memories. So, like, after seeing this documentary, man, it put me on the hunt to just try to try to find some of this work. And I immediately ran to the uh, the library. Like, if I watch this flick on a Friday, like, I went to the library that Saturday morning and picked up uh, comics by Les Daniels. And it is a perfect companion piece to this film because there's even uh, Simon and Kirby Captain America comics that are, are in, you know, the full complete stories are in that book. So I, you know, if UK Fabers at home, if you dig Comic Book Confidential, you should also check out uh, the comics by Les Daniels. It's a perfect companion piece for this. It's funny, this excerpt that they read, because it's essentially like drugs just making... Yeah, steroids. Yeah. <laughs> Super soldiers. It's uh, it's a different perspective now. Shit, man. It's probably um, the precursor to it. Like, you know how, like, the tricorders and stuff are the pre predecessor to, like, iPhone or whatever? Like, maybe Captain America was a predecessor to the anabolic steroid. I just heard someone on a podcast mention steroids coming out of, uh, I don't know if it was World War II, but that was it. They were, like, developed for, you know, use on soldiers and recovery and things. I love all of this stuff too. So seeing these comics, I never see stuff like this. Occasionally a book will feature maybe one of these characters or series, but to see like all the different titles and what they look like, 
titles um, you've never heard of. Right. Amazing logos, bright colors, weird-looking characters. It's incredible. Oh, Will. He was probably uh, still teaching at School of Visual Arts when when this film was being shot. Probably Comics and Sequential Art probably came out within a year, either before or after this this film. So at some level, he's he was an educator at this moment. I love this shot. And I was thinking about the size of this shot in real life, like if you had the comic book. Like these, how big is that in a comic book? An yeah, inch and a half square, two two inch square. Like these tiny little panels, and they're so cinematic. And of course, the the strip that Will was reading right there was uh, the 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 Sans Serif story that inspired Frank Miller's uh, Electra character, Electra and Daredevil tandem. You know the the way the way like my trajectory in, into comics fandom or whatever it came by way of Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane. I see Frank Miller's name mentioned in interviews all the time when I would read interviews with Todd and Rob, and I became a Frank Miller fan. And then I read Frank Miller interviews all over the place, and he's pointing me to Will Eisner, and I picked up the first issue of the Warren uh, Spirit magazine when I was a young boy, and. You know, that that character, uh, Ebony White, who we're looking at right there, I did not think that that was a human being. You know what I mean? Like, that's right. pretty awful that that uh, that he did that. Because as an artist, you you can you can be critical of, of the times. Like, you don't have to do what everybody else is doing. You know what I mean? Like, that's a pretty poor excuse. And I really did not think... Like, when I started to read these comics further and um, there are several stories that come later where Ebony White and, and his, his friends are hanging out and stuff and it shocked, it blew my mind like, this is a person? Fucked up. He talks about this coming out of Pulps, you know, kind of an alternative to superheroes in a way and it got me thinking about when it comes to like visual storytelling, this is probably some of the oldest stuff that I look at you know, it's not like I'm watching movies, really, from, from the 30s or 40s. Um, so in a lot of ways, this is my, my glimpse of that era. What's, the, what's this? This documentary? Or no, no, like, like Spirit. Specifically, yeah. I'm talking about Spirit because it's that urban setting. It's a city. It's fashion. You know, like it's all the incidental stuff that you may not think about, but it's, it's period specific if you were going to try to create a story from right. that era. But for, you know, work from that time that I'm looking at, this is probably the, the primary source. I love I love his like Brooklyn accent while he's reading these things, man. I could listen to these cartoonists read their comics all day, man. How ironic that whenever I go to comics readings nowadays, I can't stand it for two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the part where he's talking about dealing with writing and acting, that's something that he's very much criticized for. Um, nowadays for being like overly melodramatic with his posing and you know pulling a lot from the stage but uh you know what what else was there to pull from then that's the bougie comics journal people that that you know shit all over eisner 
Yeah, I thought about wrestling on the way over here to record, and they're just performers too, but it's the same kind of performance that's shit on and dismissed. I think there's a lot of that. We just saw John Stanley, Little Lulu. We're looking at Carl Barks, Donald Duck. I'm saying like yeah. the, the range of material that Very is in here. Is, and and he, he interviewed Carl Barks. Um, didn't make the cut for the final for the final director's cut or whatever. Um, but he Ron Mann said that Carl Barks talks like Donald Duck. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'm gonna have to investigate YouTube later. Oh, here we go, man. This stuff gave me chills. Uh, you know, that Tales from the Crypt TV show was out at this time, and I had copies of uh, Tales from the Crypt and The Haunt of Fear that, that I was able to get at the grocery store at this very at this very moment. I've, I you know, had Haunt of Fear 14 or 18 at my house, man, and, and was a devoted fan. I got to read these damn comics the same way a kid in the 50s was able to. He talks about all the people that were coming at comics. You know, I think we always think just crime comics are too violent or whatever. But there are things about reading. You know, like there are all these different groups that, that he cites as like all these forces converging on comics. Down to down to the idea that the uh, the ink would bleed when it hits the page and just kind of like hurt kids' eyes. Right, yeah, that's one of them is like it's damaging their eyes because the print's so small. It's, it's a litany of stuff against comics and... It's almost conspiratorial. Let me tell you, man, when when I watched the entire... You know, that Confidential File show is like the connective tissue that 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 this entire flick kind of... It, you know, it, it's like bookended with this Confidential File thing. And I watched that entire episode. Um, just like in the 80s, whenever like ster steroids and wrestling were a thing and, and people were wondering if wrestling was fake or not and there would be like less successful artists uh, or excuse me less successful uh, wrestlers who would come out and and talk talk smack on the business of of wrestling uh, on that same program there was a cartoonist um of there was a cartoonist on there uh named ellis erringer uh who was talking with our paul coates guy and was just talking crap all over uh all over comics I got. Uh, I had lunch with uh, Al Feldstein at the Pittsburgh really? Comic Con. Holy cow! Yeah, he was when he was a guest there. Man, he was very, very old. He, we probably lost him a year or two later. But he was a really cool cat. He, he at the time he was uh, into paint, painting uh, horses. They talk process there, you know, with uh, Bill Gaines bringing in springboards. I love that idea. I do too. And one of Feldstein's examples is guy murders his wife. And he eats her. <laughs> <laughs> what they were talking about with the springboards and, and um, you know, Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, they would show up a lot in the comics. Like, there would be, like, sort of parody strips in the science fiction comics and everything. And around this time, the classic shot of the yeah. baseball head, um, around this time, the episode of Tales from the Crypt would have been out where Harry Anderson is playing one of the pencilers uh, in the EC bullpen who draws things that come to life, man. So to like see these guys in living colors is totally awesome. When he mentions uh, the knowing that army guys were uh, were fans of comics and and uh, it's funny that Feldstein is like one of the inventors of what they called headlight comics. You know, women with like uh, very pointy brassiers. He knew his audience, man. Yeah, for sure. 
That's amazing, that image. This made me think about how comics, movies have, have worked. So, like, in the 50s, you have these super violent graphic images, right? And you weren't seeing any, you weren't seeing a, a severed arm in the middle of a subway car anywhere else. But you cut into, like, exploitation movies 20 years later, right? Getting into the late 60s and 70s. And you see, like, the horror stuff that was in these comics in the 50s is now in low-budget filmmaking, and, and it's on the silver screen. And then, again, you cut, like, 20 years into that future, and now they're adapting the superhero stuff onto the screen. It's like the, the movie industry is, like, 20 years behind the comic book trends. That's an interesting, that's an interesting thing to point out. I read I read Seduction of the Innocent and this the examples that they give in there are just so bananas man you know it's an era before before Elvis and the Beatles came came onto the scene uh parents had no, nothing to point at but themselves when it came to juvenile delinquency but what was the closest scapegoat comics and there it is confidential file total propaganda piece the the sophistication of like the the regular audience for tv i don't know that they would have fallen like you can't fall for something this on the nose now i don't think i think everybody would like smell a rat and, and it, it feels like a saturday night live because i was sitting here thinking the exact opposite of like <laughs> this is the beginning of media just trying to sell itself right so you have to make something salacious it's it, it seems ludicrous or quaint to us to think of comic books as being some force of evil i mean now they're celebrated as being hey whatever a kid will read if it's a comic book so be it but everything is sort of this way like very rarely are the storylines that are pushed forward in media actually indicative of what is the problem or the source of the problem or fixing the problem and i think this is probably no different you know right i mean comic books weren't the reason for juvenile delinquency if so whenever the 1950s happened and comics are restricted then juvenile delinquency would have gone away right <laughs> when uh in looking through wortham's book th- there's a visual there's visual visual aids in there and uh there's this one example where look, <laughs> that's that, a great cut that's a young jim rug <laughs> that really is <laughs> i carved up quite a few trees with my pocket knife as a boy especially after i saw a comic book that had a knife in one of the panels and how about the way this paul coates guy like what he talks about hanging out with his gang of friends when he was a kid we roasted potatoes like <laughs> what a fucking square <laughs> we wrote we wrote nasty things about the teacher on the, on the sidewalk what a peckerwood <laughs> Look, that's a like, great look on it's that like that living dead footage it is it looks just like it so this little kid that uh paul coates is interviewing right here little boy who says that he threw up the comic that he's describing that he read that made him sick is the jack davis baseball severed head strip and and he 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 sounds horrified like <laughs> like this kid is not joking and then he used his leg for a baseball bat <laughs> and they used his insides for bases <laughs> And how about this Colonel Clink, freaking Frederick Wortham impersonation? Man? All these pictures of the comics being thrown out or burned. This is why oh, those. Man. This is why those Golden Age comics are worth something nowadays, man. Because <laughs> because your bored your bored mom and dad, man, Couple were burning of collectors comics. were behind the scenes flaming these. <laughs> you know, I always think about uh, you know 
one of the greatest rewards for, I guess, bad behavior back in those old days was imagine like all the DC comics that were telling kids to like recycle this at your nearest such and such, you know, like paper drives. And yeah. the people who didn't listen to Batman tell you that, like, now their comics are worth tens of thousands of dollars. This is amazing footage. So anybody that's watching this, I'm sure, knows comics history, and this is such a pivotal moment. Yeah, worth a man, like, uh, getting you, abusing his 15 minutes of fame. And then, of course, this is the, the, the kef of her hearings, or however you say that senator dude's name. And Bill Gaines was there. We got a little footage of that. Uh, this is the only bit of it that I've ever seen, man. Like, it, it's clearly filmed. It's clearly shot. Like, it has to exist. Yeah, in, you're in, right. In we total. Should, we should find this footage. Because I'm sure you could get it through some public... And they, But they don't, they don't play the, uh, the most important part. Because, you know, Bill Gaines, he, he is on speed here to try to uh, slim down. And they start to hit him with some questions about uh, about <laughs> about his aesthetic taste and his creative choices and stuff. Because right here, he sounds totally perfect and cogent. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Like, kids deserve to read. Whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I, I printed up a small excerpt of, uh, of the Kef of hearings where the senator is saying, uh, you know, here in, uh, you know, Crime Suspense Stories 22... This seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed from her body. Do you think that this is in good taste? Bill Gaines says, Yes, sir, I do. For the cover of a horror comic, a cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little bit higher so that the neck could be seen dripping blood from it and moving over a body little, moving the body a little further over uh, so that the, the neck can be seen to be bloody. Look at the propaganda of the comics code, like on newsstands, to let you know consumers, parents, whoever know these are safe. We're, 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 you can buy these comics for your kids. And of course, it was an initiative by all the other publishers to to keep uh, to keep uh, EC Comics from from glomming onto their uh, their profits. Blackhawk. And then how heartbreaking is this, man? So I guess, is this guy, like, the leader of the Comics Code Authority? He talks like he is. And then how would you like to spend, like, you know, 200 man hours on a page to have, like, oh, yeah. your grandma fucking white out your stuff, man, only to put a little stamp on there? It's infuriating. Screws <laughs> up your... Look, the composition, the composition just got screwed up. Screwed it up, man. And it's arbitrary. It's like you could have two guys getting blown up, floating in the sky, but do we need that third guy? I've what? done uh, reproductions or, or uh, approximations of like old pages, and we'll have that, that comics code stamp on them. This is a great story. For a, for a while, um, in the, like towards the end of the Comics Code Authority, there's like an urban legend that uh, you know the the companies were were paying their dues or whatever to to the code to like keep the the stamp on their cover, and the envelopes were like getting put into a mail slot and just like piling up over years like like the the code was not in effect for years and people were still kind of like paying into it or whatever. That's how everything works, though, right? I mean, it could go no other way. 
And of course, the the uh, Communist Code Authority, the intellectual property of the the little stamp and all that, is now owned by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, who's trying going to uh, you know use their co- the the money in their coffers to prevent another you know super conservative uh, uh, witch hunt on comics. Look at those Russ Cochran books, man. Like, like he's just seeing those in the, from this documentary. It's like, okay, I need those. But, but I'm really curious about the ones that are laying on top of the Tales from the Crypt. Like, I don't know those books. I bet you they're Mad uh, Magazine hardcovers. Like, yeah, could be reprinted collections of Mad. Yeah, they could be anything. Foreign editions, uh, office-bound copies. So they put all the horror books and crime suspense stories out of out of business and. Bill Gaines has to p- then put out the new trend of piracy and psychoanalysis. <laughs> look at what the, is that? Yeah, look at how the subliminal messaging of that. The Harvey Kurtzman section of the of the the, uh, the documentary. Kurtzman went to um, the high school of uh, music and art in New York City. Mm-hmm. Some of his classmates, or people who were a couple years older or younger than him, Will Elder, L. Feldstein, Al Jaffe, and John Severin. Wow. Wow. I'm not sure. I think, I think that school might be the fame school, you know, from, from the movie. Kurtzman's great here in, in, this, in this documentary. You know, like, we recently watched video of him with Stan Lee. I guess it would have been... Not that much after this, four or five, five years, years. And, uh, and and he just looks so sharp here. Right at this time, he would have been uh, working his butt off on uh, little Annie Fanny comics for Playboy magazine. My uh, one of my teachers at the Kubert School, my lettering teacher, is a guy named Phil Felix, who is the the letterer on uh, the little Annie Fanny strips on Playboy. And Felix told me a story about how. Even though it's Playboy and they're allowed to be a little bit more naughty and subversive, Kurtzman's humor was still very steeped in like this this old kind of mentality. So Felix was always encouraged to to add uh, jokes and things into the strips. And he did this one uh, he put this one joke in there where there's a scene inside of a bathroom, and uh, there's the hand dryers, and uh, there's a hand dryer that's at, in a normal position. That says uh, hand job, and then there was one that was in a lower <laughs> position that said blow job. <laughs> but uh, but but Kurtzman axed, axed that from the uh, all this position. all this mad magazine coverage. It, it it drives home to me how much those guys love the source material, the genres. You know, like it's it's very fan fiction esque in a way. Like you could not produce that work if you weren't totally like in it. And, and, you know, it swings both ways. There's stuff that you're in there that you hate because it's popular or the quality bothers you or whatever. But it's still this, like, fan fiction, you know? Like, it is this thing that you know inside and out in order to do these this kind of parody. You know, it, Kurtzman is associated with, with, you know, like, old Jewish comedy and, and Borscht Belt comedy and, and, you know, Friars Club kind of stuff comes from that. And uh, what they always say about roasts are, you know, you can only roast the ones you love. and that And that was... That was mad, and and you know what? Like that, that was felt by the audience, man, because that magazine influenced an entire generation of people who we will be seeing. Amazing very design on these covers, too. You know, it, it wasn't just uh, the easy laugh or joke. 
Like it was pushing the graphics side too. And then Kurtzman will, will, will take everything that they've been developing here and when he leaves EC Comics, he'll bring all of that aesthetic stuff, including the border around that Alfred E. Newman, to, uh, to his humbug self-published uh, effort. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> I did what I wanted, so it came out all right. <laughs> this is the part where uh, Evan Dorkin would be like, yeah, well, where's the original art at, Harvey? <laughs> Carmine Infantino Flash, I believe. The new generation, so we, 20 years goes by, booming comic industry, at least 15, no no real superhero stuff, they, the big ones continued to stagger along for a while, look at that, Joe Kubert, Hawkman. That's great, it reminds me of Kyle Baker's whenever he did those oversized uh, DC newsprint strip, it really reminded me of that Kyle Baker, or the Joe Kubert art there. I used to go around singing the song. It would be on these like, when I worked in the video in the video store. There were um, VHS collections of I all these. I love that Gene Colan Iron Man. Yeah, um, there would be collections of these old, the old VHS Marvel cartoons, and uh, this theme song was on on all of them at the beginning. Joe Sinnott's sharp inking. You know, the other thing I I took away watching this is. The way he shoots all of the comic art, you know, these super close-ups of panels and figures, and you're seeing, like, the Bende dots, you're seeing the printing errors, the tooth of the paper. This is stuff I would associate with Chip Kidd and that aesthetic. Uh, and also with blogs. Like, when blogs first started up and everybody was doing, like, this is this panel from this great story, and in a weird way it would look better than, than the whole comic. You know, I'd track down the comic and it wouldn't look as good. There's a real start of that here. Look at Stan Lee with his arms crossed in the b-boy stance, and he's wearing the exact same Kazali shades, man, that, that, that DMC would wear. He's very cool. <laughs> it, it seems like such a California coolness about him in this presentation. Telling the, his classic story that he tells all the time about, you know, reinventing the superhero, not mentioning... Uh, Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko anywhere in the mix. Yeah, and keeping in mind that that several of these cartoonists are being filmed for the first time for this documentary and, and respond accordingly. You know, it's a shy cartoonist in a room. Stan's been in front of a camera <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> so as a, as a kid, I'm, I'm flipping through the stations, right? And I see this image of Spider-Man on the TV, and that was not something that you could take for granted in 1991. Sure. You know? I stopped dead in my tracks looking at this Spider-Man thing. What a great design. Like, such a creepy, weird-looking design. Yeah. We take it for granted because Spider-Man's always been in our life, but man, that is a crazy design. <laughs> the amount of dialogue in these panels, too. He's just reading this this one panel. Yeah. Like... <laughs> but he's, he's also doing voices, too, which I think is really good, man. Like, uh, I could listen to Stan Reed comics. It's a great cut. You know, it's almost animation. He's just flipping from one panel to the next. We might have to do some of this stuff on our own YouTube. But like, you know, I have some image strips that, that I did about image comics that like might work in like this video format. But here you can see clearly those dots, you know, those printing dots that again, like Chip Kidd, I think, really popularized it. Being able to scan your comics or, or photograph them with, you know, digital cameras. This is the norm now. Like we all take it for granted. This is what comics are made of. But what an effective 
presentation on television of this stuff. If you see photographs of uh, Stanley in the 50s, he has less hair than he does here, man. He's like William Shatner that way. Somehow it hits a growth spurt when you hit about 60. So as a little dude, I'm sitting here watching like, oh yeah, you know, Thor, Hulk, Spider-Man, I'm with it. Ant-Man sounds interesting. I don't know about that guy. Sounds interesting. And then and then it'll go directly into what, it'll, what it's going to go into. Blew my mind. What you know about comics in this time period and creation, are you surprised by the way this is this part of the story is told by the documentary? Like, it's very much Stan Lee's point of view. And I mean, like, we've seen footage of Kirby. There's very alternative versions <laughs> of this era and what happened here. Right. And it's an interesting documentary, but that one side seems very... I was already uh, indoctrinated because Stanley's voice would be on all the Spider-Man and his amazing friends and, and all that stuff, man. And uh, I'm like, okay, yeah, he invented everything. I think it's Dennis Kitchen. If, if, if it's not Kim Deitch, it's Dennis Kitchen, that flower girl thing. Go right into freaking Robert Crumb, man. What a juxtaposition. <laughs> Blew my mind, dude. S Stanley to Robert Crumb. Like... <laughs> That's the power of editing. It, and once again, that, that Comics by Les Daniels book has such a healthy representation of this underground stuff, too. That's what I mean. Like, the book is such a perfect companion. And there are almost the complete, you know, Zap Comics 1 is, or Zap Comics 0 is, is, is printed in that book. I, ha I have to imagine that I got a funny feeling uh, when, I, when I saw that one image. But this section here where he's talking about the evolution of Fritz the Cat just blew my mind because we just saw a Fritz the Cat comic drawn on with pencil on a piece of notebook paper and I was already doing comics at that time but I felt weird about it like you know I kept them very private and to see that an actual adult like a person who's in the game started out that way incredibly motivating to me dude And we're going minutes, like, without without seeing him, uh, seeing what Robert Crumb looks like. And then you see those eyes, man. Those are eyes, like, those are eyes that had access to that pharmaceutical-grade LSD from the, from the 50s, man. Yeah, he, he tells, you know, those stories are pretty famous, some of the LSD in the Bay Area at this time. And even ideas that some of it was government-influenced. Uh, <laughs> This is a great story that he tells about how he goes from kind of a middle-class art, you know, commercial art doing cards, which a lot of artists used to do. That was big business for freelancers and rejecting that. Rejecting that and also rejecting uh, going to Marvel Comics to become uh, a superhero artist. You know, the, co the comics that he was reading when he was a kid is like Walt Kelly, Carl Barks. Uh, Jay Disbrow, like the, Mad the, Mad Magazine would course. have been, you know, ten ten years before this. Of course, I was thinking about that just just last night when putting together some notes for for the commentary. The fact that uh, the Undergrounds came out basically a decade after mm -hmm. the Senate subcommittee hearings and all that kind of stuff, and that really speaks to me too because it's like, you know, they're Crumb is growing up when guys like Jack Davis and ghastly Graham Ingalls are being raked over the coals for drawing these lurid stories and trying to like 
you know, upset children and all this kind of thing. So when they start this underground thing, it's all it's like trolling. You know, and he says here, he's like, Yeah, we had to for us to make for us to make uh for us to explore the things we really wanted to explore, the first thing we had to do was destroy all taboos. Yeah. Man, he, he also talks about those posters coming from Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. And it was like the symbol. It was like the sign, like, this is where you got to go. I think that's pretty amazing to think about in the 60s. Like, he just meets some dudes that are going west and, and hops in a truck with them. Victor Moscoso. Let me ask you this, Jimmy. We see uh, Victor Moscoso and uh, Crumb standing there. Does that look familiar to you? Yeah, is that um It was Last Gasp. Yes, Last you, Gasp you, Warehouse. Yeah, right. you you and I were in that standing in that very spot a couple of years ago, man, when when Ron Turner the uh the gatekeeper, the grand pooba of Last Gasp uh was I think they were moving the warehouse for the first time in a long time or something like that. We we had a big party there and then I think we snuck out to get a little bit of food. And then you and your gang split, and me and my gang were going to head back to the party, and the doors closed, and we were like, fuck, how the hell do we get back to our hotel? Like, now we have to, like, this is before Uber. <laughs> and and old man Ron Turner, man, showed up in his, in his, like, soccer mom van and was like, hey, boys, what are you doing? And we were just like, hey, we have to go back to our hotel. And he's like, get in the car. That had to freak out a young... <laughs> so awesome but you know what when i was talking about the things that i saw uh out in the wild after seeing this documentary that that stoned again poster was in spencer gifts like the next weekend like i saw that poster next to a fabulous furry freak brothers poster at spencer gifts i want to see like there there are bits of this super eight footage yeah in the crumb documentary so once again, just like that Senate subcommittee stuff, I need to see this whole tape. Yeah, for sure. Like, like I need to see. He does that pra- that that fall. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. And uh, they are working on a jam strip, and clearly you could see they're rock stars. But I was doing some digging in my old uh, complete Crumb comics to try to identify the exact strip that the guys are drawing here, and I and I found it. It was uh, so this video was probably taken. At, in 1970, um, they're so small. The, the the what they're drawing is so small. Totally, and and using very weird looking tech pens of the day. I always thought rapidographs looked like rapidographs, but the strip was printed in an issue of the East Village Other. It's called Science Fiction Comics. It's a jam strip, obviously. Like they're each just drawing a panel. Look at that, Robert Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was published in. Volume 6, number 1, East Village Other, December 12th, 1970. You can find the complete strip in Volume 7 of the Complete Crumb Comics, page number 41. Nice pull. Whenever they're sitting there drawing, at one point they show Robert Crumb's head on his hand being propped up. So he's like four inches or something, his eyes, from the actual art that he's drawing. Your eyes and, and your posture can't maintain... Like, Crumb looks... And he stands the way he does for a reason. Yeah, that's a guy that draws all the time. I and often, has been forever. I often think that like like his his blurry vision probably helps a lot 
with the cross hatching, and I'm just from my own experience and being uh, pretty blind myself. Like it's very easy for me to soften the focus of my eyes so that the gray just blends into a very yeah. and his vision is worse than mine. That's a Robert Williams. Before Robert Williams hooked up with uh, the Zap Crew, he was doing artwork for for um, Big Daddy Roth and Rat Fink and and that whole Hot Rod Car movement. There's a panel uh, from the Joe Blow comic strip from Zap Comics number four that got pulled from many racks due to obscenity charges because of uh, incestuous. Uh, Oh, orgy sequence. <laughs> that looked like the tribe inside cover of tribe yeah, number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strowman and Crum could probably <laughs> we could probably do an hour with those guys on kayfabe in the in the, in the future, just talking about butts. The discerning viewer will recognize that the studio configuration that Crum's sitting in is, is very similar to the studio configuration that he kept while the the crumb documentary was being filmed i believe he said that um some of the earliest parts of the crumb documentary documentary were even being filmed uh, back back then when ron Mann was making his flick now we have spain rodriguez whenever i read early things about spain like old articles interviews and stuff people would always associate him even in that comics led by les daniels book they they call his work Kirby-esque, and and I don't I don't see it. I just feel like maybe they just don't have much vocabulary to that. Write. Looks like it. Yeah, I know. As soon as I say it, like that image right. comes up, and it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But by and large, man, I, I I don't I don't see like I mean, if that's Spain right there, this policeman, right? It's nothing Kirby about that. The strip that they're showing off, though, man, I love this thing, and I own basically. Every comic that is being talked about in this documentary, but I've never seen this strip. So any of the kayfabers out there in the comments, let me know where I can get my hands on this comic with Trash Man about to uh, shoot up the uh, Democratic National Convention dinner or whatever the heck we're looking at I here. I think that's in that original Trash Man tabloid. I don't know it. Oh man, I have to send you some pictures of it. You'll you'll, you'll like it a lot, because he he did a trash man that was on tabloid newsprint, like oversized. Yeah, I've never seen that. Um, Look at that man loading on the offset <laughs> print machine from Wonder Warthog. Uh, I believe Gilbert Shelton ran the press from his house before they they had an actual uh, facility to do this. So this image right here, the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, another poster that was at Spencer's Gifts at the same time that this was on television. The, the rigor of his drawing always astounds me. Yeah, like, Crumb would have this, um, this, this like, shaky crosshatch. And what we're seeing on screen is actually not the, the most, the most rigorous uh, example of Gilbert Shelton. This is still old material. But just as he grew, as he grew older um, and continued throughout the years and just gained more and more drawing skill, like, the crosshatch, it was 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 totally insane he was one of the alternative underground guys that i first gravitated towards because of that level of line work good good pacing to this program as well because you think about um gilbert shelton and robert crumb both did work in help magazine under the tutelage of the editor harvey kurtzman you know so they grew up influenced by harvey's uh mad mad comics and uh you know t five ten years later 
Harvey Kurtzman's over there with James Warren doing Hope Magazine, and, and they had some of their earliest work, uh, comics were published in there. That's just an amazing drawing. Like, there's foreshortening and everything in that. Shelton has a great voice for, like, cartoons. Yeah, he does. He sounds like a voiceover guy. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, man. The, these, these old undergrounds, man, every single one of them had work That's from cartoonists beautiful. that you will never... You've never heard of before or since. Is that Rory Hayes right there? I don't think so. No, not Rory Hayes, but uh, Greg Irons. Mm. Justin Green, Binky Brown. One of the early artist edition reprints. Totally. And then and then you have like Will Eisner doing this snarf thing, Trina Robbins in Ain't Me Babe. But you have uh, Will Eisner doing that snarf thing. And then you have Harvey Kurtzman hanging out with with those dudes while they're doing jam strips. And you could just like tell that it's like, here's the old dudes that are trying to like hang out with like some young hip hip kids and maybe well, get Kurtz, a young girlfriend. Kurtzman would have been hanging out with underground dudes on, one, on, on a weekend, right? And then going back to SVA with Will Eisner during the week. Like, <laughs> it's a lot of range. I've never read uh, the Air, Air Pirates. I believe uh, they... It has to be public domain now. So, so the images are... It's all online and there will be links in the show notes um, so that you could check it out. But like the Air Pirates is a collective. So... Dan O'Neill, he did this strip called Odd Bodkins. And it was in the San Francisco Chronicle. He started it in 1964. And, you know, talk about the paranoia of, like, weed and shit like that. Like, smoking marijuana. He, like, left and came back a bunch of times. And ultimately, he started to get paranoid that the newspaper was going to, um, was going to kick him off. And then get somebody else to like draw odd bodkins. So what he decided to do was to start to incorporate Disney characters into the strip. And he used dozens of their characters. Now this is before Air Pirates, by the way. Um, and ultimately, uh, because what his idea was, was that because he did not own the copyright, it was the newspaper. So he wanted to get them involved in a copyright infringement case with Disney. Didn't happen. But he got fired, and he got to keep the rights to his odd bodkins. Then he put together, you know, this collective of, of uh, cartoonists, Bobby London, Sherry Flanagan, Gary Halgren, Ted, Ted Richards. Each of these cartoonists kind of embodied the work of, of earlier comic strip artists. So, like, you know, Sherry Flanagan, she was drawing, like, a mix between, like, Windsor McKay, Claire Briggs, H.T. Webster. Uh, Halgren was, like... Um, Polly and her pals kind of kind of artwork. Bobby London did Dirty Duck, and and his art was kind of crazy catish. And Bobby London, after Air Pirates, would go on to 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 helm the creative duties on the the Popeye comic strip. Dirty Duck uh, appeared a lot in uh, Playboy magazine, even as into the '90s. I remember seeing it. And then and then that Ted Richards guy had like a uh, sad sack, uh, Beetle Bailey kind of style. So all these guys like they they had reverence for. Sure. You know, the stuff that they were covering. And, uh, you know, they took it to this place. That's an amazing idea. Like, I think he... This is such a strange piece of interview footage to me. Because he talks about this court case with Disney fighting to say that that is Mickey Mouse. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Well, just way different times, man. Like, thank, thanks to the internet, like, a lot of people throwing their hands up and just like yes. and just like okay it, it has to live like you know in internet speak there's there's a term called 
called Rule 34. Do you know Rule 34, Jim? So Rule 34 is there is pornography of anything that you can imagine. You know what I'm saying? And so if you type in Mickey Mouse Rule 34, you're going to find 10,000 naked Mickey Mouse, you know, sex drawings probably. And what's Disney going to do? You know what I mean? Sue everybody? I want to put a call out to comics publishers, man. We need a collected Trots and Bonnie already, man. I read Sherry Flanagan's Trots and Bonnie in uh, National Lampoon. Um, and even the, like the later years, like whenever National Lampoon sucked, but like they would still get some interesting cartoonists here and there. And her stuff was formatted like a little Nemo strip with like you know numbered mm-hmm. panels, soft soft edges at the corner, and everything like that. Man, her and her cartooning is just sublime. Plus, she's like really hardcore, man. Like so, it's just like she describes it. It's like cute imagery, but then you know, talking about some wild stuff, man. I think the Air Pirates had had like a compound that they all lived in. <laughs> And um, she, for a very brief time, was was married to uh, that Bobby London guy. But I wonder what she's been up to. You know, she she's like she's like one of those early like badass National Lampoon cartoonists that, in the same breath, as like M. K. Brown. Or like even I think Mimi Pond even was like a part of the, not Air Pirates but like part of that yeah. early National Lampoon crew. You hear guys like Mike Judge talk about these ladies as being like tremendous influence on his work. This is an amazing strip, isn't? I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that our demented laugh is going to be uh, on that track just before this little dude meets his retribution. Very attractive cartooning. Perfectly spotted blacks. Mm-hmm. You know, and good, like, different kinds of gray values all over the place. Simple expressive faces. Yeah, I'm sure some of it's careful curation, but the chops of the artists that they've showcased are extraordinary when you think of everything that, that we see in comics is not uh, not quite up to that level. No, that's for sure. But But, like... Everything that we see, it is such a wide range, too. It's it's probably the widest range of comics that existed at this time. Like, I don't know how how much further you could have taken it. I think that uh, there's, like, some Blu-ray, uh, some Blu-ray, uh, you know, updated Comic Confidential thing that has some extra interviews and stuff. And I think, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz was, was a part of that. Whenever Bill Griffith came to Pittsburgh for picks... I brought this up because obviously this is like my well that's not true because the zippy the pinhead comic strip was was in the pittsburgh press back then so i knew the strip had no idea that it came from underground comics but i got to ask him about this and and he he was like so weirded out by the idea that they wanted to do this thing but i don't think like getting a chance to hang out with him and spend time with him on this documentary and on the crumb documentary he doesn't come off very well like like i think he's very nervous on camera or something like that because he is he is um far more talkative uh like like the stuff he you know he's almost ta- he's almost doing shtick here to me you know speaking in non sequitur and stuff yes. like that and and it's actually a little bit of a put off but he's not this guy 
that we're that we're watching. You know what I mean? Like he's way more lucid because like this this young Griffey is not like a lucid character. Do you think that's intentional here, or do you think that's being on camera without a lot of experience being on camera? I think it's both, probably. I like. I think he's like. I think he's trying to like. Uh, I think he's like trying to sell a thing, but I think he's also just not pulling it off because he's too nervous. Like he's not committing. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's not committing to the weird shit that he's trying to do, so it just comes off very stilted. If this is your comic, I'm sure the expectations for you, the person, are pretty weighted you know what i mean like it's it's bizarre like it defies description in a lot of ways and now you're sitting in front of a camera being asked to to describe it once again the pacing of this is perfect too because it was bill griffith and um art spiegelman you know bill griffith was on like the west coast spiegelman was on the east and they were both the editors-in-chief of uh, arcade magazine the the um very short-lived anthology that preceded raw i feel like that's an underrated anthology it's a, it comes between like the underground you know zap or something and then raw as you mentioned but it's that's a great anthology i was thinking we should have we should have uh talked about that on the palmer's picks where we were talking about underground anthologies That zippy guy is so disturbing. That'll, that'll haunt your goddamn dreams. Silver Snail. I think this store is still open in Toronto. I think I saw a mention of it, like in the in the chat room comments. We have a couple Toronto kayfabers out there. Cody Starbuck, Howard Chaykin, Howie Chaykin. What is that guy's name? Mike Friedrich. I always get Mike and Gary confused. So do I don't I. think they're any relation. <laughs> this puts a good timestamp on it. Destroyer Duck was out. Steve Gerber and Jack Kirby. Destroyer Duck is early 80s, right? Cerebus is late 70s. Star Reach, mid 70s. Yeah, and that ElfQuest was late 70s as well. So they're basically describing the rise of the direct market there. And which comic book stores for, you know, I guess lack of a better term. Treasury editions. Watching this, I kept thinking about crossovers and how, like, it's a sign of struggle, right? Whenever, when, when the competitors band together, I feel like that's an indication that maybe the industry is trying to get some cash infusion by getting some national press. Oh, this is Harvey Picar talking, man. Harvey, my man. That dude saved my life, dude. It is nice to contextualize these. So this is like second wave of underground alternative comics. Whenever this came out, um, the the American Splendor collection with the um, Drew Friedman cover was was out in like Walden books and shit like that 
I remember I remember seeing it, and and even even this young, the parts of the Marvel comics that that I ha- was reading, I was way more interested in. Um, I was way more interested in like the Peter Parker parts. Yeah. And when I saw that American Splendor collection, it's like, okay, it's a comic book full of the Peter Parker parts. You know what I'm saying, man? Super important to me. I'm, try- I'm trying to filibuster and not listen to him too much, man, because I don't feel like crying in front of you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke with this guy on the phone whenever I was working with him for two and a half years, sometimes for hours. And, um, and he would call up and just talk to my dad about football and junk like that. Like, uh, like this dude... S- this dude helped me escape poverty, man, by, you know, giving me a chance. You know, I'm forever grateful, man. And when Robert Crumb was was working at uh, American Greetings, American Greetings was was in Cleveland, so he knew Harvey Picar. They were they were pals there in Cleveland through the music, their mutual love of music and music collecting. Yeah, record collecting and trading, and it was. Uh, it was Crumb who put the battery in Harv's back, man, and uh, you know, told told him to told him to, to kind of get busy. Like, Picar was inspired by the stuff Crumb was doing. Jotted down some quick scripts, and Crumb read them and was like, "Yeah, man, let me illustrate a couple of these things." Such a ridiculous story. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Harv, I love you, but uh, the strip is about him stopping his record collecting and i've been to the man's house <laughs> now he's co- he at the time he upgraded to cd but i think i saw five six thousand put it this way the entire hallway of the upstairs was cds <laughs> from from floor to ceiling on a rack that like went like that like, to the point where i don't know how he was ever going to grab the ones at the top <laughs> So that collector thing is just it, 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 it's a it's a thing you're born like you have you know it's a condition almost <laughs> he had a heck of a library too man like he ha- he had these bookshelves like you see here um and they were back to back like in a library and like with you know two and a half feet of space in between amazing personality too beyond the comics like having a life on, you know, as a Letterman character, essentially. You know what's crazy is, like, of course, yeah, he was on Letterman, and he. He's another interesting guy to do the compare and contrast with Stan Lee. You know, the 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 very smooth in front of the camera, but also a character. You know, right. Linda Berry was on Letterman, too. Young Jaime. I feel like you should be able to donate your your car to the Billy Ireland uh, Cartoon Art Library for the amount of like <laughs> important and great cartoonists who got to ride shotgun in your car. Jaime being one of them, Steranko. I remember see, like seeing this for the first time and um, thinking that the images were about as big as that, like you know, a, a piece of paper, and thinking that it looked like coloring books. You know, I'm like, oh, that looks like coloring books. Not realizing that those panels are about the size of, like, four postage stamps, you know, stacked together. But Jaime told us a story once, man, about Comic Confidential and the part where he's sitting there drawing. And he said that Gilbert is uh, is kind of, like, to the side. And it <laughs> keeps making fun of the way he's drawing boots and cars and just totally, like, uh, you know, fucking with them. 
fucking with his little brother. I love, I love that like lack of holding line. Yeah. Um, just have the line for the shadow underneath the nose. And Jaime, like he went to like a community college or something for for um like a semester or some shit when he got out of high school. And he says that like the art teachers there are like these like classically trained. He learned so much. Really. From from these like in they were like grizzled vets, old, like these old timers who who he he cites as being like incredibly important for like the growth of his art. Yeah, like that car, like like uh, Gilbert's over to the side, like <laughs> you call that thing a car? <laughs> I'm so impressed by those drawings because anytime you're drawing with a marker or something on an easel, like it's all unnatural, and you're trying to work as fast as you can because you're in front of some sort of an audience. I feel like that stuff reads pretty well. Speedy's still alive. <laughs> he he doesn't know the fate that's that's gonna come. I love that panel. Me too. And when he says it looks like chalupas, and then the other guy's like chalupa chicharrones, it would be it would be ten years after this that like the chalupa comes to Taco Bell. And when I saw that word again, like because this was my only context, and I was every time I would see it, probably even still to this day, I think chalupa chicharrones. Oh, young Jaime man, he's like the most gracious guy because he talks to me like I'm a peer, and I'm like I know I'm not, dude. You're just being nice. Linda Berry. One of the early alt weekly comic strip cartoonists, man. Ernie Ernie Pook's comic, alongside uh, Charles Burns with his big baby strip and Matt Groening's uh, Life in Hell. I think I think her first uh, Ernie collection was published by Matt Groening. Hmm. This is way before any kind of drawn in quarterly or anything. Like I'm talking like late seventies. Man, she's incredible. Anybody watching this ever has a chance to see her in any capacity, speaking, a panel, whatever. She's amazing. Yeah, you know, I, like probably like you, man. You know, I, I, she teaches she teaches classes from from what I understand. So it's like you have to. She has that skill set of being able to kind of like command a room, and and uh, keep people engaged. She strikes me as uh, almost like a genius quality where like she just sees things differently than everyone else. Like one of the things she was doing in her in school because she teaches at uh, higher ed, she was doing these programs where she would put together scientists and kids to draw and then like comparing their drawing styles and they were identical because it has something to do with like visually trying to represent an idea. So, you know, it wasn't art as much as it was just like there's this thing in my brain and now I'm trying to put it on paper for a record to organize this very similar and it's it's interesting man like anything she does I feel like is worth time I remember seeing her speak uh, just about just about comics in general not, not even specifically her own stuff but she's talking about uh, her love like she hates you know there's this like fashionable trend of like hating on this comic or that yeah. comic, and 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 she adores Family Circus. <laughs> Did you ever see this thing? And and she, um, I guess I guess she, she had tra- traumatic upbringing as, in some extent. May, maybe I'm wrong. Like I don't, but she, she just described something that didn't seem very happy when she was a kid. And she described the Family Circus, especially the circular nature of the of the panel, as being like a portal into like 
the 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 a world of like a happy family where siblings got along and stuff like that. And, and when she was talking about it, she actually broke down a little bit. Yeah. Like so so she was she wasn't playing. It's funny to hear you describing it and then see those pictures of the very <laughs> unhappy faces. Here we go, man. Gummo bubble, man. If you ever read uh, Dan Dan Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we were showing off Raw Magazine on the on the live stream, um, people in the chat room were like, "Oh, that's the thing that uh, Klaus is talking about in, in Dan Pussy." Like, yeah, like yeah, it exists. Spiegelman, he was he was teaching at SVA at at, at this time too, and and uh, you know what his regular day job was at this time. You know why he's Gummo Bubbleman because he worked at Tops. Mm. He is cited as being a. There's a lot of controversy around it, but he is cited as being a creator of Garbage Pail Kids. Mark Newgarden uh, sort of takes takes that credit as well. Mark Newgarden would have been his student. You know, Mark uh, Newgarden was, you know, in the class with Kaz and uh, Friedman. Francois is really great on this documentary too, and tells one of my favorite stories I've ever heard in my life. Raw is such an incredible book and remains incredible now like there have been you know i've seen articles where they show the sketchbooks like the production books that she and and uh, spiegelman would put together as like mock-ups and trying to map out you know how do we do this what is the theme you know graphically all that material i just think is incredible and i think she's responsible for a lot of that like the design and production stuff i think she is oh absolutely there is there is a reason why she gets to be the art director of new yorker magazine and just for some trivial side note, man. Her humble beginnings uh, sort of began as a colorist on uh, Masters of Kung Fu. It may or may not have been the David Mazzucchelli issue. Jerry Moriarty. That's been reprinted recently, thankfully, because you are not finding that book cheap. <laughs> I'm eating all this stuff up. Red, yellow, blue plate. Red, yellow, blue plate. Black. Four. Four color. All in color for a dime. Like, I'm making all these connections. This is one of those great stories talking about their production. And it's like, it's this meticulous production with super cheap materials. And the printer's just confused. <laughs> and, dude, we both experience that. I'm sure oh, you yeah. experience that with, with uh, Aphrodisiac. But, like, you know, with the weird printing and, and the weird sort of setup with the hip-hop family tree books and even um my my x-men stuff we get notes back from the printer hey this black line is a little light and it's like it's supposed to be that way don't you dare touch a goddamn thing i'll be like chris wearing i'll fly to china yeah i've gotten phone calls from, from <laughs> like wherever we're printing this stuff and it's like this is the registration's off paul karasik paul karasik expanded on the story she tells here uh, when I was asking about his days at Raw, um, the, the, the cover that they all were kind of tearing up mm -hmm. and uh, re-stitching back, uh, you know, to, so that every single issue was a little bit different. He said that there was like this like anthropological thing that was happening while they were par at the party smoking weed doing this shit, where it turned out that like just very naturally, all the guys were tearing the magazines up and destroying them. And it was like the women on the scene who were like mending fences. Yeah. This is that great story. The printer just is beside himself. 
I think she had like an like like first off, look at how cool their setup is. That's the other thing that I made note of like, of like at the very beginning of this flick. Like, yo, I want I want all the stuff that that Paul Marides dude has. Like, I look at this and it's like I want those flat files. I want those racks. Like, it's like I'm unconscious incompetence as a little kid. I don't know anything, but like when I saw all this, it's like okay, I need that. I wonder if that was like real estate was cheap back then. You know, that they could afford, like, these big production spaces in New York. This is another one. This is this is just production porn. Totally. <laughs> Sorry, I'll put, I'll put that away. <laughs> Forgot where I was at for a minute. Wow, man. And then, and then, you know, just another clue into, like, how comics were being made. You know, like, it's all on one sheet, and then, you know, you fold it over a couple times. You, you, you uh, you know cut it and staple it how great is that we're, we're doing our light meter read <laughs> also he has that pose on the chair and i was trying to figure that part out where he's like perfectly framed in black with that setting around it yeah charles burns he looks he looks younger now than he does back then <laughs> how does that happen you know you know how that happens man when you're balding just shave it all off i think that's the move man this highly disturbed me like like his reading of this because it's like okay you call this comic big baby that kid looks like professor x (laughs) like and he looks even taller than everybody else in the thing he doesn't look he looks challenged we'll say (laughs) yes like what is this freaking thing and then you see this guy um bananas but the but um the what i what what else would have been on tv at this very time um, that I saw this documentary was Liquid Liquid Television, and Liquid Television did um, they tr- they uh, adapted the Dog Boy comic strip that that Charles Burns did on on a weekly basis. So I saw Charles Burns' name in the in the credits in the back, and then like when I watched Dog Boy because it's highly visual. You know, everybody's wearing plastic hair, and uh, there there are people who look like this. You know what I mean? Like the plastic hair is in the same shape as the characters that he's drawing. So made that direct correlation really quick. Just from a filmmaking perspective, it's really great to get that full circle of like the EC Comics reference here again. I embarrassed him uh, really bad at the Miami Book Festival because I think I pointed out, I think I think I put my finger on like a certain like obsessive compulsive thing that he did that he just kind of took for granted as like yeah this it was outed basically like he, like maybe he he just you know didn't want to put it out there out there or whatever but anyhow in that book x'd out there's a part where the the character wakes up and he and he's he's in his like loft bed and there's a brick wall that's like facing the bed so the character wakes up and there's a hole in the brick wall and you see that hole in the brick wall in like three or four maybe five different camera angles right five different shots if you count up the same amount of bricks are always there on the wall like it's always accurate the bricks that are jutting out are always accurate and there's like little bits of like brick dust like on other bricks and he and he draws that in there at like five different camera angles five different perspectives and i told him like yeah man that's not lost on me dude like i appreciate that you would do something like that he turned beet red after i said that and he's like well 
you only have one chance to get things right, he said. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> but it embarrassed him, and I, I thought I was just totally pay, paying him a compliment for, like, being thorough with, with his production. Yeah. He must be so obsessive in real life. You know, like, you see the art... You, can make assumptions right <laughs> this is a guy that's getting every detail perfect for him to be like self-conscious of you calling that out like he must get it about uh from civilians <laughs> <laughs> you call me a civilian jim about to shut off this recording <laughs> next comes suko I wish there was another documentary that, that was on each one of the features that we've seen like 10 minutes of. It's <laughs> like raw. I could watch two hours of this stuff. Absolutely. And, and Suko, somebody that I'm very curious about I, because I just simply don't know much about her. Yeah, not that, you know, I'm curious how she got into comics and out of it because she's her career as an artist is much bigger outside of comics, obviously. Probably some crossover in New York. Um she describes you know like she talks about propaganda and her work being propaganda and propaganda being through all the media i kind of love that perspective she she is like i i mean i wonder if she's saying this ahead of the curve but one of the big criticisms of her work like from from you know big big time artsy fartsy art critics is that um she is is like you know, in pro wrestling parlance, going for the cheap pop right. with, with her artwork. So I wonder if she's like trying to cut it off at the past, try to steal the thunder of those critics, or if this is her saying this in response to a lot of the criti criticism that she's received over the years. It feels like chicken and egg, you know, because artists are forced to talk about their work, especially at this era. You're writing artist statements, you're being interviewed for documentary films. And you're seeing that criticism, you know, if you're showing your art and it's and it's being seen and it's important, um, you're getting those criticisms leveled at you and being asked about them. So I'm sure that's an ongoing evolution. But that is propaganda, you know, like like using that low common denominator, being sensational in your in your imagery and message, all propaganda. And look at this, it's like proper bookstore. I think that's what they're like what they're communicating like and then here's like the little piddly comic section and then <laughs> Joel's Pfeiffer Fanagraphics uh, reprint I think Kurtzman Crazy Cat Ron Mann the filmmaker said that he uh, his first the first interview that he gave that he conducted was with uh, Jules Pfeiffer didn't make it in the film but somehow by doing that interview he was able to get a lot of seed capital for the for the feature film back with Spiegelman man I'd be curious to see that Jules Pfeiffer stuff I wonder if it's on the blu-ray any of the kayfabers out there who have the uh, comic book confidential blu-ray put something in the comments and let us know what kind of stuff we can expect on there like I don't even have a blu-ray player but if if it's uh, enticing, I will buy a Blu-ray player just for this. That breakdown panel, I loved. And, like, I have breakdowns, and I, I... It's so different to see it, like, on a page with 14 other panels. I wonder how much of this was early in Ron Mann, like, figuring out this movie was, like, looking at single panels, looking at them big on a screen. Because there's so much power in what, how he's presenting this stuff. 
it's almost like changing the uh, context for comics, you know, this documentary. So I see this documentary and that same year in grade school, either fourth or fifth grade, you know, those little um, like tracing paper feeling uh, uh, scholastic things that they would pass out on homeroom where you check off the mm-hmm. box and, and, you know, get your mom to write a check for 15 bucks or for a couple of books. Like, of course, every time they would pass those out, I would, I would get some books. And uh, after I saw this documentary, Mouse was in the scholastic what, reading is fundamental, whatever those things are that you got in homeroom class, man. So you have the, you have the Pantheon. Like, see, so you have more street cred because your uh, your mouse is um, the Pantheon mouse, but mine is Scholastic mouse. <laughs> <laughs> What's your impression of mouse with, uh, like, cartoonists? There is... A certain critical mass, like when, when a book hits a certain threshold, people talk shit. Okay. And and you know it happens with Spiegelman, happens with Neil Gaiman, happens with Jeff Smith. Uh, so my goal as a cartoonist is to hit those numbers and have these douchebags talk shit on me, man, because it's like clearly these guys are doing something right, and they're not voicing the fact that they that they are uh, jealous. But that's the only way I read it, man. Because I don't... I just ignore stuff that uh, I don't like, man. I think it's so successful visually. And whenever I've heard people be critical of that part, it always I, I can never totally understand the criticism. Frank the Tank. Whenever you watch this in uh, high def, like, see, I just remember this from, from the TV, but when you watch, like, the Blu-ray, uh, you could see, like, the s- smoke wafting here from, from his <laughs> cigarette or whatever. How old is he there? 29? He was a young man. You know, he was a young man when he got into the game, very early 20s. And I think... Ron Mann says that uh, Dark Knight is kind of st- still underway. Dark Knight is not complete when they are talking with one another here. Boy, it looks good on screen, too. I love the way they cut together like the television screens. For everything I said about like the... Uh, the limited animation and the mm-hmm. fun watercolor on uh, some of the earlier images. Uh, that background is whack. It's real bad. <laughs> I can't figure that out. <laughs> like, at first I was like, when I was young, I was thinking like, oh man, maybe maybe Frank Miller is like a method cartoonist. Like, like, like he's, he's now <laughs> working around the studio. Yeah, like he's now, <laughs> I thought it was just straight up the wall. Like, okay, he's, a ba- he's working on Batman for a year, so he's just going to paint like, you know, a fourth grader Batman mural on the wall of his studio. Charles Burns is like an evolution of like a Dick Sprang, Charles Paris. Yeah, Charles Paris. I was going to say, like, that's the anchor that I think of with him. What's, fun, what's crazy now is that Frank Miller looks like Will Eisner from, from, from this documentary. Nowadays, man. Uh, 
That's a pretty neat effect. It is, and and it it works like to the viewer. It works almost like uh, Clockwork Orange. Yes, like, like you know, <laughs> like, like you're just get, getting all this stuff, and it's like ah. Oh. It's incredible to me how well this stuff cuts. You know, it's so cinematic, and I know a lot of cartoonists are influenced by by movie tropes, but seeing it actually cut this way, it's it's pretty wild. Frank is deep. Look at that gaze. I love that panel, like where where uh, where Batman is throwing that smoke grenade because that's like I did this uh, whenever before I hooked up with Boing Boing for my comic strips. I did uh, I did this like essay about cause and effect in comic panels, and, and I remember I, that. I was just showing these examples where there's like a passage of time throughout the whole strip that like like you know the single image might be 30 seconds of time and that was one of the panels that i cited Ooh, i saw the original my man benno owns owns that splash page with dark knight with a uh, batman on the horse man pete bag neat stuff sergio aragone screw commies from mars i don't know but i'm curious prime cuts fanographics anthology shatter in the back corner <laughs> first computer comics Times square or as i called it time two when i was this age <laughs> dean modder paul re re uh, referring to it as time two <laughs> <you met. laughs> yeah well, like when we had dinner with chaken howard i love your work man time two is my favorite <laughs> And we got to say that to him, and he was like, ah, yeah, you wouldn't be the only one. The only difference is you would have been eight years old, and it's, you know, 35-year-old guys saying that to me. Heck of a documentary, man. Yeah. Let me ask you, does, uh, you know, after watching it, I guess, you know, you watch it two times in two days. I don't know about you, man, but but it puts the battery in my back to get back to the drawing board and make some comics. Yeah, for sure. That's what I'm going to do tonight. Let's close out this recording and get the hell out of here. Yeah, another good uh, good session. Hope the K Fabers enjoy this commentary. If they do, I'm sure we'll find other stuff to weigh in on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like Howard Cosell. In pro wrestling parlance... I would say that you are like the Gordon Soli or like or like the Lance Russell of the tandem. And I think I'm probably closest to like Jerry the King Lawler. I wish. Like like I was going to say that little douchebag guy from the ECW stuff with the glasses that would yell and scream. Like that's probably as good as my contribution is to the gimmick. So guys, uh you know, like the video, share it, subscribe, tell your friends. Social media platforms everywhere that matters, man. All the links are in the show notes below, in the description below. Peace. Yeah, and if you haven't seen Comics Confidential, this is the perfect excuse. <laughs>